Hello, and welcome to another episode of Speaking Culturally. Today, we're joined on the telephone by Richard Josie. Richard has more than 30 years of experience in the field of history and interpretation, and he's also the founder and president of Collective Journeys. And today, we just want to welcome Richard to Speaking Culturally. Peace, peace. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Richard, let's go ahead and jump into it here. Uh, Let's get talking about uh, dark history uh, here with dealing with Africans and enslavement in America. Uh, interpretation is very key and critical in understanding the narratives here. And I know that you have done a lot of work with interpretation and helping uh, people develop the narratives for their organizations at historic sites and such. So why don't you go ahead and fill me in and let me know, let let the listeners know, what do you think about the interpretation, especially when it comes to Africans in Virginia? Cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I started in, uh, I think it was 85, um, you know, under, uh, at Colonel Williamsburg. And so I was in that, that, uh, that time frame where, uh, they had just started, um, you know, active living history sort of, you know, uh, African American interpretation in Williamsburg. They had just started that in 79. And, um, and so in 85, 86, that's, that's when I came on. I was still, uh, I was still elementary middle school at that time. I was 10. And, uh, they started a, uh, youth, uh, juvenile interpreter program, um, for African American interpretations and presentations department. And so, um, so I started there and, you know, and worked with, you know, some, uh, s- some amazing folks. Um, you know, many of them, you know, uh, you know, folks that's coming from, uh, that did some work at the Smithsonian, like, you know, Rex Ellis, uh, Christy Coleman at the American Civil War Museum, uh, Rose McAfee. You know, I, I could name, you know, a bunch of names, um, less a name dropping and more of the fact that um, I was surrounded by a diversity of black people. And, and, and through that, I was able to uh, look at black history and understand the diversity of black peoples. And, um, and, and so that's where I think, you know, when I start to, you know, like the, a lot of the conversations and the thoughts and things that I have right now is trying to find that balance between um, slaves did this, you know, as sort of this sort of authoritative sort of statement, um, while it's true that some slaves did do X, Y, and Z, slaves also did A, B, and C, and and right. and kind of really start to try to find how do we negotiate between uh, black peoples as a group and black individuals, and and that's where I think um, that's 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 much of what my earlier time frame from working at CW, um, you know, uh, doing you know gobs of stuff with Mount Vernon. Um, Minnesota Historical Society. I went up there for a few years. Um, I was at CW. I was at Colonial Williamsburg, by the way, for like 20 years. So, right. so much, so much of my career um, was based around that Colonial Williamsburg, you know, uh, you know, time frame and and culture and um, and that whole mission, you know, and whatnot. Now, Richard, you uh, you brought up the nineteen late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, when interpretation was beginning to change, and there was more inclusion of the of the African experience in sight interpretations. What do you think now? Uh, now that we're past that period, and and there's been the adaptation of social media and such, how do you think these historic sites now are utilizing interpretation, and are they doing a better job now than they were? And where they, if, if so, where they, where are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? I think some places have, um, and some places are still struggling. Um, holistically, 
um, sometimes for 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 me and and several others others that I have regular conversations with, it seems like the conversations are cyclical. Um, I remember conversations in the early '90s that are still being held now, and, and so it, sometimes you know for you know sometimes that that, that can be frustrating. Um, and then I, and then I'm just reminded that you know growth and, and, and evolution. Uh, transition takes time. Um, it takes involving people who weren't involved before, and and ultimately, you know, all of us are on our own sort of sort of journey. Um, and and where we are now doesn't necessarily mean that's what we're going to be next year. So it's it's really about how do we um, how do we extend some level of grace <laughs> for 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 some of these institutions that um, are still struggling, and but but then also how do we also hold them accountable, provide them resources, um, and, 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 and assistance to, to make that move. Some places, you know, from some conversations that I've had, just don't seem like they want to make that move. You imagine a museum that's built up on their endowment. Right. They don't, they don't, they don't have to have X, Y, and Z in order to, you know, sort of, um, you know, make those sort of changes. Like a lot of these places that are making these changes are making them because, uh, you know, several years, uh, maybe 10 years ago, there was this uh, uh, census piece, this piece that came out, I think it was Time Magazine, that talked about how the demographics were going to change. And then museums started to react to that. Some museums started to react to that. And uh, I, 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 I got some, some, some personal feelings about that because it seems reactive rather than, um, you know, an intentionality to creating a holistic experience for a variety of people. But um but I, I think I think there's some places that are just doing some amazing stuff that we would have would have never thought about in the eighties. Um and and, and just interpretations, not just because of technology or anything, but just people are thinking different and they're talking different. Um and so those are the types of stories and, and places that are that are really sort of um um exciting me right now and and, and and putting thoughts in terms of what the future, what the future could potentially be like. Now, Richard, we've all been to Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, we've all heard the stories of the Middle Passage, uh, bondage, uh, and so forth. When you look at a place like uh, Colonial Williamsburg now, and other historic sites that are doing interpretation that include enslavement, what are we missing? Like, what what elements of enslavement are we missing that we should be learning about through interpretation now? Um. I think the the big thing that we're missing right now is um, the connection to today. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what happened in the past. And I think we continue to do that um, and, and continue to explore the nuance that, that existed in the past. Um, but, you know, you know, from the seventeen from seventeen seventy five up until now, there's a whole lot of stuff that that's happened, and a whole lot of uh, different perspectives and different interpretations that's come about. And I think the one of one of the things that that we we miss is that that direct connection of the past to the present to answer the question, so what now? Right. 
Um, I, I, and I, I think a lot about, you know, the, the future and, and, and seven generations principle, you know, and everything that we do now will affect us for seven generations. And so I think that there's um, a, a real need to find a way to be very intentional, intentional of connecting that past to the present so that we can have a clearer understanding of the different perspectives and different truths that, that we exist in now. Now, inclusion of uh, different elements of telling the complete narrative, uh, WPA slave narratives, uh, for instance, is something that could be used. Slave ads and newspapers are things that can be used as well. Uh, there's a book uh, by the title uh, Slave Patrols, which dives into the element of uh, slave owners having people patrol their plantations in search of possible runaway slaves and the development and evolvement of that into what is now everyday community policing. What, what do you think about including these elements to fully tell uh, the narrative of what enslavement was like for these blacks that were enslaved in the South? I do. I, I think, I think, you know, those and, and, and objects of the past, you know, other objects, I, I think those things need to be incorporated more. And I also think that um, the presentation is what's going to make or break it. So, um, you know, I, I come from the school of, you know, dialogue. I come right. from, a, uh, you know, this place of, you know, bringing people together collectively um, to discuss, you know, what, like you take a painting and you take 10 people and they're all seeing different things in that painting. And, um, and then from there, then we could say, okay, well, the, uh, well, the artist, uh, you know, actually wrote it for these purposes. However, it doesn't, that doesn't invalidate what you take away from it. I, I really think that there is something to be said about how we use these objects to build a stronger community of people that can, talk with each other. Now, your organization, Collective Journeys LLC, uh, helps uh, historical organizations and sites and such uh, develop narratives, help them tell the complete narrative. Have you run into any instances where you've had a client where they want to tell a narrative, but they're reluctant to really include a lot of the elements that we've already discussed, uh, the, the dark history of enslavement, the dark past. I mean, how do you how do you get these people to open their minds and have them willing to include certain elements of enslavement that traditionally probably would not have been talked about? Well, I think it's uh, it's, it's a couple of things. There's you know I generally look at things in a um, in an internal and an external sort of approach. So when I think about internal, I think about you know, um, where, you know, where is the research? Um, who did the research? Uh, is research an ongoing function, or are you pulling up research from the 1860s and using that as if it's the gospel? Um, internally, I also think about um, training, you know, learning and development, and it's, uh, it's, it's the distinction between um, uh, sort of uh, how how you look at a, uh, a will, or, or matter of fact, you look at a runaway ad, and the way that they're articulated, well, I like to help people understand that that ad is in the words of so-and-so. But because you don't have the words of the enslaved person, understand what truth you're getting and what truth you're not getting. Right. Um, I also, you know, on that internal side, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about, you know, what is, what does diversity, what does inclusion look like? 
you know, in the function of the organization so that, um, you know, new ideas can surface to the top, new questions can surface to the top. Externally, I'm I'm talking more about you know what's your relationship with the with with your um with your local colleges with your local communities your, your local community organizations, um, what are their needs? Are you having conversations with them about their needs, and are you having a true partnership, or are you just having you know something where you're, um, I don't know, uh, still trying to subtly dictate what the what what the community wants and needs without the community being involved, um. And so when I when I when I when I think about what institutions need, um, at least right right at, at this point in time right now, I think it's 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 not as much about the you know in some places they definitely need to kind of you know partner with some academics and you know get some research going and so on. Um, but I'm finding and and part of it I think is where my focus is right now. A lot of it is on the internal structures and systems. Um, that so that internally you can have a relationship with the community. Right. Um, internally, you can have a relationship with yourself. I, I've, 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 I've seen organizations um, miss opportunities because they're still struggling internally to understand who they are and who they can be with the full panoramic and, uh, of diversity that they have within their institution. Now, here in North Carolina, what I've noticed with uh, some of the museums and some of the historic sites is that they're afraid to really push the envelope to talk about enslavement and, and the total inclusion of what happened. Uh, you're more likely to be referred to a slave narrative or, or something like that, but a lot of times these institutions will not speak to uh, what happened. They, they don't have anybody that's well-versed enough to talk about these with, with visitors to sites and museums. How do you get these people uh, that you that your clients? How do you get them to use their voices and ultimately just be able to tell the truth and control how they deliver the narrative to their visitors? You know, I, I, honestly, I, I I think you know maybe five years ago um, my answer would have been different, but but now I'm starting to think that I'm starting to find the the real sort of importance of boards, okay. the real importance of leadership, um, that when you look at, a, at, you know, we I've spent some time, man, kind of joking about, you know, mission statements and value statements and so on, and I'm starting to find that that's what you rest your hat on. Um, there's, there's places whose missions are solely to preserve the past. And so if, you're, if, if, if your mission is just to preserve the past, then you don't have to have as much focus on, you know, how you talk about the past in a way that's meaningful today, right? Because all you're doing is just preserving the past. Right. Um, I think that – I think there's a couple of things. One, I hope that the new wave as we move into 2020 um, uh, is placing a little more emphasis on the language that we use when we're when we're talking about um enslavement and oppression um there is there's this weird sort of thing that I've been struggling with recently and I was just putting up a I just commented with a couple of folks on Facebook about this and that and I mentioned this earlier this sort of uh the the individual versus the collective um when you hear someone tell a story and say you know well slaves they did x you know did x 
And it's like, well, when the guest leaves from that, some guests may leave thinking, well, yeah, all slaves did X. And then you come upon, you know, me, and you hear that there was a slave man who, um, who prostituted his daughter in the 1700s. Well, that, that's kind of jarring to, you know, for somebody who's coming from an experience where what they heard was that slaves didn't have no choice. Right. So, so, so it, it get, kind of gets, you know, we get into this sort of uh, thing, you know, Kanye said this thing a few years ago, you know, a couple of years ago, like maybe last year, about slaves didn't have a choice. And I had some weird feelings about that one because Kanye has never been a historian in my mind. So I, I think what he say with a grain of salt. Um, right. But I also know that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people out here that listen to celebrities and, and, and they rock with that and they roll with that. Um, and, and so I, 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 I don't want to get uh, too long-winded or anything, but I, I, I think that there's um, just a level of uh, nuance and complexity that can be helpful when we're talking about human beings who lived in the past. Um, right. I'm, I'm a father. I got two kids. So um, when I start looking at somebody like Dred Scott, who had two daughters, I can relate to that brother in some ways. Right. In some ways, I can't. That human element, the more that we make black people of the past human and we talk about them as if they were human, that they were individuals that we collectively put into a group, then I think that we might find a better way to talk about it um, with, with a level of sensitivity, with a level of care, without, you know, uh, you know, getting rid of the passion um, or anything of that nature. But, you know, it, it's tough, man, because, you know, we all, have our, we all have our opinions on what it's supposed to look like and should look like. And so um, it's, it's getting pretty tough to figure out how to talk about it um, because of so many conflicting opinions on – what, how it should be talked about. Now, Richard, you raise a great point about talking about the language uh, that's used in delivering uh, the narrative and how they're using language in, in their interpretations. Uh, for instance, here in North Carolina, I've gone to a couple of museums here, and there, there are panels that say uh, black, black slaves grew rice uh, in North Carolina, and the slave masters taught them to grow this crop. And knowing what I know about this, because it, be, it is my research area, no, these people were specifically taken from a region in Africa where they grew rice and brought here for the purpose of growing rice. So that interpretation uh, is, is lacking. And I, I got into a discussion with a woman who told me flat out that, um, no, the, the, the slave owners taught them because there's no way that uh, black enslaved people would have the knowledge to grow rice. And I'm like, no, that's not true. They were purposely stolen and brought here for the purpose of growing rice. So language is very important when using uh, using an interpretation. So uh, let's let's just, let's get into that discussion a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, you know what you bring up you bring up something I was just uh, I was just laughing about just recently because I heard somebody say you know you know George Washington was a gentleman farmer and I was thinking to myself I said I said oh he was. Oh, he was out there. That's what's up. <laughs> but but that, but but that that term in itself, you know, puts out a variety of different images. When I heard it ten years ago, I, I might have shrugged my shoulders and said, "Okay." And now I'm hearing it. I'm like, "He was a farmer." 
Wait, do you mean he managed the farm? He oversaw a farm? Because like, when I think of a farmer, I think of somebody out there on the tractor, with, uh, out there with the plow, like actually doing the work. And so, um, so yeah, it, it gets really interesting because some of this language that we that that's being used is language that's being perpetuated from um, misinformation or, um, or 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 half of the story that was told, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Man, oh, wow. Well, Richard, I want to thank you for calling in to Speaking Culturally, and thank you for your time. And I want to give you a little moment to, to give your, your two cents on interpreting enslavement in America. All right, cool. Um, yeah, so, bro, there's the, the two things that I think about, you know, um, that, that, I, that, I, that I leave with. One is um, there's a period in our history that I think is probably the most overlooked, and that's uh, Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction. I'm reminded. I'm reminded of that period because that that ties directly to you know coming out of slavery, and leading up to you know all of these sorts of things that even more so directly set up um, the issues that we're combating today. So I think that Reconstruction and post Reconstruction period. I think we got to pay a little more attention, much more attention to that than we have in the past. Um, and the other thing is, um, you know me, man. You know I floated. It's a big question, and 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 we gotta ask ourselves that question in our personal lives and our professional lives. What kind of ancestor will you be? Right, and that's it. Well, again, we want to thank Richard for calling in, and continue to listen and speaking culturally over the next couple of weeks as we do discuss this topic of the importance of interpreting enslavement in America and where do we go from here. 